Blog Talk Radio. Mysteries on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Sherry Knowlton. I write the Alexa Williams suspense series of books, Dead of Autumn, Dead of Summer, Dead of Spring, Dead of Winter, and the latest, Dead of Delta, Dead on the Delta, which is, will be released on February 16th. Hi, I'm J.M. West. I write the Carlisle Crime Series cases, Dying for Vengeance, Courting Doubt and Darkness, Darkness at First Light, had a Dying Fall, all featuring Carlisle Homicide Detectives Christopher Snow and Aaron McCoy. And my latest mystery, Things Strangled, was released last year. And I just submitted my latest book, a historical novel, to Sunbury Press to, rele- to be released later in 2021. Our books are published by Sunbury Press, uh, its imprint, Milford House. And today we're pleased to have a fellow um, Sunbury Press author, Margaret Meacham, who's author of mysteries, magazine articles, short stories, and a writing instructor. She's with us today on our podcast, where we'll discuss her mystery, The Ghosts of Laurelford. Boy, I should have practiced saying that. Um, and what a great time of year to talk about a book with ghosts in the title, with Halloween just a couple days away. Right. Margaret Meacham is an award-winning author of 14 novels for children and young adults, and a mystery set on the Chesapeake Bay. Her books include Oyster Moon, which has been optioned for film by Green Films, LLC, Secret of Heron Creek, The Ghost of Laurel Ford, The Survival of Sarah Landing, Quiet, You're Invisible, and Mid-Semester Night's Dream. I love that title. And another uh, charming title, A Fairy's Guide to Understanding Humans. Her books are sold internationally, and two titles have been translated to French and German. She has written reviews, articles, and short stories for the Writer Magazine, Library Journal, Country Magazine, The Successful Student Magazine, Maryland Magazine, Highlights for Children, Baltimore Magazine, and The Baltimore Sun. She has... Taught writing for many years at Goucher College, Towson University, and currently teaches through Gotham Writers Workshop. Now living in Brooklynville, Maryland, a small town north of Baltimore, Meacham and her husband have three grown children and four grandchildren. Welcome to Milford House Mysteries, Margaret. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Um, you know, you've got a cr- uh, long resume as a successful novelist, a magazine writer, uh, and a reviewer. Um, it's really varied and impressive. Uh, and you write in different genres. Um, so one of the things that our readers might be interested in is, and our listeners, uh, how do you adjust your writing to different audiences? 
And along that vein, um, are your novels, um, specifically The Ghost of Laurelford, targeted primarily to children or young adults? Can you talk a little bit about genres? Sure. Um, my, I have the three humorous books that you mentioned, Quiet, You're Invisible, A Fairy's Guide to Understanding Humans, and Mid-Semester Night's Dream are for middle-grade kids, ages, say, okay. uh, eight, 8 to 12. And then I have several mm-hmm. for young adults. The Ghost of Laraford is both young adult and I think, I think Sunbury Market fits for adults as well. And um, I've had adult friends that have read it that enjoyed it. So, and I think all good children's books and young adult books should be able to be appreciated by, by adult readers as well. As far as whether I'm, I, I love mysteries. I love to read mysteries. So I like to write them. I also like to write humor. Um, and I, it's sort of just when I get an idea, I try to figure out what that idea would work, what kind of story can I create around that? And that's pretty much how I, I decide. It has more to do with the idea, I guess, than the just sticking to one genre. I love to read. I love to read all kinds of things. So that's why I like to write lots of different things. Hmm. Well, set in Laurel Mountains in the western Pennsylvania in 1919, the ghost of Laurel Ford's main character, 15-year-old Lacey Gillespie, is visiting the Taymeyer Mansion in Laurel Ford, Pennsylvania, with her grandfather. However, she's deeply involved in women's suffrage work at home in Pittsburgh, and she would like to return to continue her important work that's important to her. The Taymeyer family has hired her grandfather, a private investigator, to investigate a medium, Mademoiselle Matilda Ferret, who will be performing seances seances, rather, at Laurel Ford, and he insists that Lacey accompany him. As the visit unfolds, Lacey learns Mademoiselle Matilda is more complex than her first impression indicated. Now, without any spoilers, can you tell us what Lacey discovers about the madam, or Mademoiselle, rather, and how that builds suspense? Well, Lacey, first, her father is a detective, as you mentioned, and she she has to go with him to accompany him to this mansion outside of Pittsburgh in 1919. And she reads that there's a ghost a ghostly story about the mansion. And she her father's going to be investigating uh, Mademoiselle Mathilde, who was a spiritualist, a well-known at the time spiritualist. And you know those were the days of there was a lot of spiritualism around. Um, uh-huh. So her grandfather's investing them for fraud, and Lacey meets Mademoiselle Mathilde. She, of course, agrees with her grandfather in the beginning. But once she meets Mademoiselle Mathilde, she begins to believe that she's not quite the fraud that every that her grandfather at least believes her to be, and other some people do also. Um, and, and she realizes that she, Mathilde is very much of uh, she's under the uh, sort of the being almost like a prisoner held by her uncle. And so um, Lacey agrees to try to help her, to help her get away from her corrupt uncle. And um, they they develop a friendship and they solve some other mysteries along the way. I didn't give any spoilers, but that's pretty much. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think you book. did. You have to read the book. 
That's right. <laughs> and Lisa does realize she's very, in the beginning, she, she, she's 16, she's very upset that she has to leave her work for for the suffragists in, in Pittsburgh and, and really doesn't want to go. She finds out along the way that she can learn a lot and have some interesting experiences um, in ways that she, she really didn't realize she could before. And she learns a lot about other people, I think, as well. Well, so you've got a spooky house, you've got seances and spiritualism, you've got a mystery, or more, maybe more than one mystery. Um, but you chose the Laurel Mountains as the, the setting. Uh, Laurel Mountains are in Pennsylvania for those listeners who may not uh, know the geography. Um, right. is, is there a particular significance to the setting uh, for you? Um, are you familiar with the area, um, or did yes. you just well, think I, it I, would be a great place for a ghost story? I myself grew up in Pittsburgh, so I would travel there with my family occasionally, living near where this book takes place, the Laurel Mountains. I used to go skiing there and just go out there to get out in the country. It's a beautiful area, uh-huh. and I've always loved it. Also, my grandmother, um, this book, if, if you have the book in front of you, you might see the, there's a poem in the very beginning called Ligonier Creek. That was written by my grandmother, oh, yeah. Ruth, yeah, hmm. Ruth Miller-Reed. Um, and I, I've always loved that poem, and it's, it's, since it talks about preserving beautiful spots, not only for ourselves, but our children, too, I, it, I found it quite fascinating. It was written back in... Um, 1919. So she was kind of ahead of the game on trying to preserve our beautiful world. And I I, I wanted to write about that place. I also used my grandmother's diaries. Um, she wrote a line a day. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they're diaries in which people just every day would write a little bit. And uh, I used those to get the flavor of the period and the way of speaking um, just to make them a little more authentic, my, my book a little more authentic sounding. And they were very helpful. And she loved That's fascinating. That, that's a good source. Yeah, really. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. It was very, very helpful. And it was fascinating to me, of course, because she's my grandmother, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and also uh, throughout the book you noted that Lacey understands that helping individuals can be as important as working for a cause. And there are also many kinds of mysteries in the world, some of which you can't understand or, or explain by reason or logic. And can you explain exactly. that without giving any spoilers? Yeah, um, of course, uh, as I said, Lacey was very much a suffragist, and I wanted to write about that as well and bring mm-hmm. that in. Okay. Um, but she, being her, her grandfather, who she's lived with since she was a very young child, is is a detective. He's a rationalist, of course. Um, he solves mysteries, and he. So she was brought up to think very, very rational, rationally. And it was different for her to to meet Madame de Mathilde, who does have a little bit of clairvoyance. Um, of course, a lot of what her uncle forces her to do in the seances is is fraudulent. But Mademoiselle Mathilde actually does have some clairvoyance. And Lacey comes to understand that, and I, I don't, I don't really know if I believe in, in clairvoyance or, or not. Um, but I do think that there's many people in the world that are very, very 
sensitive and intuitive. And mm-hmm. I think that we don't, you know, we don't, we don't always know what, there are many mysteries in the world. And I think it's good to keep an open mind within reason. Not so open that mm-hmm. your brains fall out, as my, as my <laughs> stepfather used to say. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> well, let's switch for a minute and and talk about some of your other novels that you've written. Um, the Secret okay. of Herring Creek, The Survival of Sarah Landing, Quiet, You're Invisible, um, and A Mid-Semester's Night's Dream. Um, right. Now, uh, are they standalone mysteries? Uh, and then, oh, we don't want to yeah. forget A Fairy's Guide to Understanding Humans, which sounds very delightful. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about each of these books? Uh, sure. And, uh, you know, whether they're related or not or just standalones. As you say okay. earlier, you mentioned that, you know, you just get these ideas and then you channel them into a particular uh, genre. So it sounds like an interesting process. Yes. Um, I Several of my books are set on the eastern shore of Maryland, which is another place that I love. And I spent my summers there with my other grandmother. So I always found it to be a very, very inspiring place. Uh, it's beautiful also. It's on the water, of course, on the Chesapeake Bay. And I loved it. And um, Secret of Heron Creek, uh, I wanted to write about the area. I wanted to write about a boy, um, William, who is sort of based on my son, Pete, who's now 40, but back then he was 10. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, as you, you all know, being writers, that a lot of times I, our ideas come from our, our subconscious and the things that are important to you kind of are working in there somewhere, I think, and that's where my ideas come from at least. And my son was at the age where he was growing up and growing away from me. So I think I wanted to think very hard about him. So I based the character of William on Pete. That's in Secret of Heron Creek. And I will tell you that William does meet a sea monster, Chessie, who's a friendly, kind sea monster. And he befriends her and ultimately has to save her. And in the process of having to save her from a cruel, evil man that lives down the creek from him, um, he, he grows up a little and and gains some confidence emotionally. So that's the secret of Heron Creek. And then Pete is my oldest child. Then I have uh, my second daughter's name is Jenny. And, you know, when Pete's a book dedicated to Pete came out, you can imagine what she said, which was, mm-hmm. where's my book? <laughs> so I wrote um, my next book called Boy on the Beach for her. And um, that also takes place on the Eastern Shore. And then my third child, Katie, said, well, where's my book? And at that point, I wanted to know more about the history of the Eastern Shore. So I did my first historical novel, and that's Oyster Moon. And uh, it takes place in the, in the Oyster Wars on the Chesapeake Bay, which is a fascinating time in the Bay. Lots of conflicts, so lots of story ideas. And that, was, that's, that one's a pure a mystery, I, I think, a family story and a mystery and a historical novel, all all rolled into one sort of um and then after that I, I i wanted to write some humorous books my agent and tobias said you you can do humor why don't you write a humorous book and so i i wrote quiet you're invisible which was great fun to write um it's about a boy who um 
meets a time traveling boy. This time traveling boy, by mistake, has traveled back to um, to, uh, Hobie's time, and Hobie meets him and has to help him get back to his own time. So that's what that book's about. It's it's humorous because Zerk, who's the time traveler, is <laughs> he's kind of a an amusing character, and he's um, can be can get into trouble, and so he draws Hobie into trouble. And he also has what's called a dematerial, what I call the dematerializer. He has all these futuristic, um, uh, you know, tools and things. And so the dematerializer is a watch sort of thing that he wears and turns him invisible when he wants to be invisible, but it's malfunctioning. So it sometimes will make him, if he is invisible, he'll become visible. And that happens when they're in the principal's office. Hobie is, oh, no. and also Zerk, but Zerk's invisible and suddenly <laughs> is about to pop in. So a lot of things like that happen that make it uh, humorous and made it great fun to write. I, I really love writing that one. And then Mid-Semester Night's Dream began, actually, I came up with the title. I have to admit, it's the first time I usually don't ever know the titles of my books until I'm finished. But I got that title in my head, and I just said, I've got to, I've got to write a story, you know, to go with that title. And... It's a great title. Yeah, it is. And it's also, what happens in that book, the main character, um, a a teenage fairy named Greta Fleetwing comes to live with her for a a home study. She's she's in Fairy Godmother Training Academy, Greta is, and they assign her to go live with a human for two weeks and find out what it's like to be a human. So she appears in Morgan, the main character's main, Morgan is is 12 and she has a doll's house in her bedroom and the appears there one night and tells explains to Morgan that she's here for her homestay and Greta is also kind of a mischievous character and she um, is not supposed to do spells because she's still learning she's in fairy godmother training academy but she (laughs) thinks that's all nonsense and so she proceeds to try to do spells Morgan has a crush on a guy in her class, and um, Greta says, hey, no problem. I'll put a love charm on you, and he'll fall right in love with you. And so she does, but she, she messes it all up. So, And every time Morgan t- or Greta tries to reverse the spell, things go from bad to worse. And, and after that, then my only sequel is A Fairy's Guide to Understanding Humans, because I had so much fun with Greta that I decided I had to bring her back. <laughs> so Greta <laughs> comes back again to live with um, Morgan. She's writing a book about humans for the fairy world and she gets everything all completely wrong. So part of it is, you know, essay or excerpts from Greta's quote unquote book about human, the human world. And most of them are not right at all. <laughs> so that's what that one is. Is that, hmm. is that, oh, and then yes. survival, of Sarah, survival of Sarah Landings also that on the eastern shore it's an adult mystery or a grown-up oh, an adult, okay a grown-up mystery not adult in mm-hmm. the sense of adult movies <laughs> which you guys probably know but. Yeah. <laughs> so it's still like pg at least right <laughs> it's just plain old grown-up it's just it's not an adult mystery in that sense it's just a regular old mystery for for, for older readers <laughs> for uh, older readers yes yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> you know, it sounds like you've been writing for a long time, and you listed second grade as your earliest, you know, recognition of your goal of wanting to be a writer. And many of us face challenging or difficult teachers in our elementary years, and we want to forget right. maybe those memories. But your stern, <laughs> demanding second grade Mrs. Gray read her students' she, stories, like E.B. White's right. Charlotte's Web and C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. And tell us why these stories impressed you as a child. Well, for one thing, as I said, Mrs. Gray was very, very strict, and she put a lot of stock in perfect handwriting and mm-hmm. um, perfect, perfect spelling. And I'm not a very good natural speller, thank God for spell check. And I have terrible handwriting. I love my computer. And so second grade was not a great year for me. But at the end of the day, she would tell us, okay, everybody sit down, hold your hands and listen. And then she would read to us those those wonderful books that you mentioned and others. And I was transported out of the classroom onto the farm with Fern and Wilbur or into Narnia with the Narnia kids. And I just, first of all, I was so relieved that I made it through another day. And I just loved those stories. And I can remember thinking even then that it was, it seemed like a miracle to me that those, those writers could create these characters who were as real to me as the kids sitting right next to me and, and create these whole worlds that I could, felt like I could see. And it did seem like a miracle to me then. And it still does. I think stories are a kind of miracle in a way. And I, I, I now am having the wonderful pleasure of reading my own grandchildren, the Narnia books. I've read them most of my books already, but um, the ones that are appropriate for them, for their ages, they're, they're seven. And I've been reading them on Zoom. When the pandemic started, I began reading the series. Oh. We're through four books now, yeah, and it's been, it's been great. I, I get to see them now, luckily, but when it's, you know, in the very beginning of the pandemic when we couldn't, we couldn't even see them. So that's been one nice memory for me of these times. I think there'll be a lot of not so, in fact, there are a lot of not so great memories about of this time, but that's one nice one. Yeah, it sounds like a, a nice way to sort of turn a, a bad situation, find a silver lining in a bad situation. Exactly. Um, it's interesting, uh, Margaret, that, uh, you know, you had uh, at least one teacher and probably more influence you so so directly, um, and now you teach. Uh, so uh, I guess one of the questions is how does your classwork um, or what you do as a teacher um, translate or approach to your uh, to your your approach to writing, uh, does it impact it? Um, is there a, a way to describe your process that relates to your work in the classroom? Well, actually, I I, I teach mostly virtually and some on Zoom. I teach for write, uh, Gotham Writers Workshop. I teach all adults who want to be writers, or some okay. of them are writers. And they, yeah, mm-hmm. so. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a community of writers, which is one thing I love about Gotham. And um, I teach, and before the pandemic, I would teach up in New York, you know, about four one-day seminars. So I would see, get to actually see my students in person and meet them. Um, uh-huh. That would be four times a year. I'd travel to New York and do that. Now I do that on Zoom. And then my other courses, I teach, um, I think, eight, ten, ten-week courses um, throughout the year. 
So I'm always teaching. I love it. I love my students. They're, they're wonderful. Um, I get, of course, many, many ideas and thoughts and, and all kinds of learning from them as well. And I hope that they learn from me. And um, yes, it, it, I, I, in sense of just enriching my, my work and my life very much so. Um, and as far as my process, I, I've always been the kind of writer. I write usually in the morning. I, I don't, I can't concentrate on writing for more than about two or three hours at a time. And really that, mm-hmm. unless I'm on a deadline and I have to spend more, I, that's about all I can really do and be productive. So I do that, the writing, and then I, you know, the rest of the day I'll, I'll work on teaching or, um, you know, all the other things that go along with writing, as you know, it's not, it's not just the actual writing of a story. There's a lot of other, as a professional writer, there's a lot of other things you have to do. So that's the rest of the day is for teaching and for the other, the business of writing, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I, it's one thing I always try to tell my students is figure out what works best for you. Don't feel you have to write eight hours a day every day or even every day. I used to always take the weekends off. I don't so much anymore now that my kids are all grown and everything. But, um, you know, everybody has their own process, and you, you just have to find out what works for you. As long as you you make it a priority to a certain extent and find time, the time that you find for it can be as little as, you know, half an hour, four times a week. If, if you have mm-hmm. another job and, and kids and family and friends, you know, but if you, if you stick to that consistently, you'll find that you can accomplish a lot. And I think it's a much better way to look at it than to say, I have to have eight hours with nothing else. Because <laughs> you know, who has that? I don't think most people do. Yeah, it's a matter of yeah. balance, I, I I believe, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I used to teach, I taught too for 40 years, but now I'm retired. So. Uh, and I also noticed that you um, you write reviews, and do you write reviews of, you know, all different age groups? And, and how do you select the books from the millions out there to choose from? And do you have a formula for oh. the reviews? And, and where can readers That's find your reviews? Well, actually, I don't write many reviews anymore. Um, oh. Lately, I've been writing. I've I've been writing articles. I've I've written a couple articles for the Writer Magazine fairly recently, mm-hmm. and you can find those online at you know at the Writer. But I haven't written many reviews lately. I like reviewing, but I actually started my writing career by reviewing. Um, I was a librarian, and a young woman who worked for a local newspaper came in and asked me if I knew. Anybody who would write a review for her magazine, for her newspaper. So I said, yeah, I, I'll do it. And so I did it. And she liked it. <laughs> then, I did a, then I did a column for them. And then that, I, that was lucky to be able to translate that into a column for the Baltimore. It used to be the News American. Do you know the, the old News American that used to be a, a local daily in, in Baltimore? So I wrote a column for them <laughs> for several years. And occasional reviews for the Sun, Baltimore Sun, um, and I'll still do an occasional review now and then if someone asks me or has a book they want reviewed. But I don't, I don't anymore do it as a reg- on a regular basis. 
Um, but I loved doing it. And they, they, people would send me books, you know, publishers would send me books. And it was a great way when I was, you know, quite young. Um, I got mm-hmm. lots of books sent to me, and that was that was great fun. Um, so, uh, yeah, as far as deciding what books, it's now it's usually if someone says, this is a great book, would you read it and see if you want to review it? Or if someone, um, there's a book I particularly like that uh, I can pitch a review to, you know, to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I do I do a lot for my for, for Gotham and for my class, of course, I read a lot of books about writing and new children's books and stuff. And I usually will just mention them or, you know, rather than a full-fledged review, so to speak. No, that makes Yeah. Well, um, Margaret, it looks like we're just about out of time. Um, thank you for joining us and, you know, sharing your journey as a writer. Um, we probably could have spent another half hour with you. Uh, do you want to tell um, everyone where they can find your books uh, or if you have a website or something like that? Um, my website's under construction right now. My youngest daughter's helping me with that. Um, as far as my books, they're all on Amazon or, you know, any of the other, um, you know, uh, book sites. That, but mostly just go to Amazon. I think it's probably the easiest. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And there are, of course, they're available in bookstores, but nobody is going to bookstores right now. Yeah, right but, now, um, uh, unfortunately, yeah, there are yeah. not too many bookstores. Although some are open. Yeah, some are open, and yeah, you know, m- most of my books right now would have to be ordered anyway, because I don't have anything new out right this minute. But I'm working on a new one, so totally different again. This one's for younger kids, so. No, something I okay. haven't done a lot of. Yeah. But it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. And a reminder to all you readers out there and all our listeners, all of our books are available at Sunbury Press's online bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online retailers and bookstores. And a special thanks of all you for listening to Milford House Mysteries for all these years. We hope you enjoyed our program. And our next podcast occurs on November 19th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, In the meantime, happy Halloween to all. Uh, If you're interested, you can listen to some of our previous podcasts. If you've missed some of them, uh, just search Milford House Mysteries on the BookSpeak Network. Um, Also, uh, please follow us on social media. I'm on the web at www.SherryNolton.com, plus Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm on Facebook.com, slash Crawl Off Crime Cases by J.M. West. And my website is all lowercase www.CarlisleCrimeCases.com. Until next time. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you, Margaret, for joining us. Margaret Meacham. Thanks. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Great.